humanism says we're essentially good. Anyone heard of Ben Elton? He's a comedian. Yeah, very few of you. In the 80s and 90s. Sorry, he's a bit old before your time. Uh, I know that when he was asked whether humanity was good or not, he said, I believe the sum total of good outweighs the sum total of evil, despite evidence to the contrary. It's interesting, isn't it? And I thought that it summed it up quite well about what we think of ourselves. Our Western world believes we're essentially good at essence in who we are. That's our view of ourselves. But what about God's view? What does God really think of me? And that's what we're talking about today, God's global verdict on us all. What does God really think 
of you. If you've been following the arguments so far in the book of Romans, you'll know that Paul has argued that salvation, being saved, is by faith in Christ alone. And that is the same for everyone, whether you are Jew or whether you are Gentile. And the reason is that everyone is under the wrath of God. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 18. That is, for our rebellion against him. Chapter 2, last week, which was a pretty tricky chapter, wasn't it? Um, was you heard that God's judgment will be according to the works. And even the Jew comes under that too, because they fail to do the law. Well, what we see today are two questions that lead on from chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. It's often preached on this section, and it's often just uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 9 to 20 that we're familiar with. And that bit in chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, where we just skip over and we go, "Uh uh-huh, what does that go on about? We don't understand it, so we'll skip it. But actually, it's an important link in the argument, and so we need to pray um, as we begin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Uh, Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the privilege it is to hear your word and to know you. And we pray that we might do that now. Amen. Amen. So what's the first question? Well, if you look at verse 1, it says, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul, you've just said, if uh, being a Jew or having the law will make no difference on Judgment Day, what's the point in having the law? What's the point in being Jewish? Or or circumcision, which is the mark of who we are? Answer, verse 2, much in every way. In other words, it's a great privilege. But, and this is the first point, that privilege doesn't mean that God is not just to uh, to judge his privileged people. He's going to judge his privileged people as well. The first point. Look at how it was a privilege in verse 2. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. And you might think, that doesn't sound very kind of exciting to me. Um, What about all the miracles that we saw? What about Israel being brought out of Egypt? Why is this the privilege? Well, he says you've been entrusted with it. And entrusted has the idea of being given something to take care of it, to look after it, to keep it safe, to pass it on. And it's the very oracles of God. It's the very words of God, the living words of the true God. Just take a look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when God, uh, when Moses is speaking to his people. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? Do you see the privilege? They were totally unique. They had the word of God. They can relate to God. They can know God. Of course, there is privilege. And they were to pass it on to future generations. Just imagine, think about the privilege you have here today. You're thinking, I've got so many assignments to do. How can you say I've taken time out to be a privilege today? But it is. Sitting here, or at faculty group, or at church on Sunday or Saturday, or at team or the Bible studies, every time we open up the Bible, we hear the maker of heaven and earth speak. And so we need to listen, isn't it? He's now here speaking as you read his word. 
It's a great privilege, just like Israel. But that would lead to a response from a Jew, you see, because the question would be, verse 2, what well, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Sorry, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? A hapal. If the Jews are unfaithful, as you say, and he judges them, surely that means he can't be keeping his promises to bless them, as he did in his word, which he gave in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at his answer in verse 4. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now it looks like the answer is, he just is. And you're thinking, well, that's not very convincing, isn't it? But, but why? Why is he just? Well, the quote comes from Psalm 51. And if you know anything about Psalm 51, it's the great King David admitting his sin before God. He's just committed adultery, and he sent the husband of that woman he's committed adultery out to his death in battle. And, of course, when he finds out, and when he realises he's sinned, and he realises that he's guilty before God. Look, he says, you are just to judge. He says, forgive me. Israel were given promises, yes, but those promises included judgment for disobedience and blessing for obedience. So can God be just to judge his people? Is he unfaithful in any way? No. He's not unfaithful. He's faithful to his word, even if he has to judge everyone. And of course, it's the same for all of us, of course. Look at what 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I wonder if this is in his background of his mind as he's saying this. The saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with him, we will also live with him. And the him there is Jesus. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, God is faithful to his word, friends. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you continue to, to keep going in faith in him, what is the just thing for God to do? Well, he's going to say, do exactly what he says. You will reign with Christ. But if you deny him, and there may be some of us here who haven't yet accepted Jesus as Lord. If you deny him, what will he do? He will also deny us. That is the just thing for him to do. Third question. Verse, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Okay, Paul. If we Jews are unrighteous, as you say we are, aren't we showing God off by our unrighteousness? Don't it, doesn't it make him look better? He answers with a question, verse 6, by no means, for then how would God judge the world? Again, it seems like a kind of arbitrary answer. But actually, consider this. When evil happens in our world, we want it to be paid for, don't we? It just seems plain wrong that people get away with it. But we don't really want justice when we do evil, do we? We want forgiveness. 
And there's similar thoughts here. If you don't want God to judge you for your failure, how is he going to judge the Gentile for theirs? It's inconsistent for God to judge the world if he doesn't judge you too. And a similar question arises from his answer in verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. The one question I um, get often from my teenage kids is, look, if God is good and if God is, is loving and kind and, and all the rest of it, uh, why didn't he just create the world perfectly to begin with? Why did he have to go through creation and then letting man do what he wants for, and then choosing Israel, and then sending his son Jesus into the world, all for his glory? It's not my fault then. Why does he punish us if that was his plan? Seemed unfair to me, doesn't it? Of course, these people who are talking go one step further. Why not do evil that good may come? And look at how he responds in verse uh, is it 7 or 8 there. He says, their condemnation is just. And you think, again, that doesn't sound like a very satisfying answer to me, Paul. But when you dig a little deeper, he doesn't need to say anything else. Because the question condemns the questioner. Do you remember back in chapter 1, I don't know if you remember, but a mark of evil is slander. So firstly, they've been slanderously accusing Paul, so slander, they're in trouble. But worse than that, they seem to be approving of evil. They said, why don't we just go, go ahead and do evil? Do you remember verse 32? It's up on the screen. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they don't only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you see? Their question has actually condemned them. That's why he says their condemnation is just. Do you see the point that he's making all the way through this first section? The privilege God has given doesn't mean he isn't justified to judge his wayward people like he will judge us all. The Jew is privileged, but it doesn't mean their sin won't count against them. They will not avoid judgment like us. And God remains faithful. And that's important. Because if God's character is under question here... If Paul can't argue that the Jews are under judgment as well, despite the promises, well, his argument collapses. And that leads to the second big question of the day, you see. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Verse 9. In other words, are the Jews going to be any, any better off when it comes to the God's verdict of judgment? Verse 9. No, not at all. For we've all charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And really, that's our second point today. God's verdict of unrighteous is for his privileged people as well. Everyone is under sin. In chapter uh, 3, verse 9 to 20, it's like a closing statement in a law court. Imagine, you know, that closing statement you see on Suits or whatever programme you watch. I don't know, law programme you watch in a court of law. And Paul is going hard. This is like his convincing closing. Um, it's a catena of references. It's like a chain of verses or psalms. And the intended effect is to build up, pile up the metaphors to establish this picture 
of what God really thinks of us. Verse 13 and 14 concerns the mouth and words and lips. Verse 15 and 17 is our, our direction in life. And all our activity is under the influence of our rebellion against God. Verse 18, there is no fear before God. No, he's not saying we're all as bad as we could be. He's saying that all our faculties are under the shadowy rule of sin. And that's important. A few years ago, as a staff team, we went to the Thornball Club just down the road. And that was very amusing for everyone else, but not for me. Because I hadn't quite worked out that the lawn bowl has got a weight in it. <laughs> Why is it I keep going outside the lines, much to the amusement of everyone else, and can't get near the ball that I was trying to do? Well, it's like that with sin. We all veer towards suppressing the truth about God. And it would have been a shock to hear from the Jew. Because the Psalms he's quoting are about fools, about the wicked, about the enemies. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who are good. The voice of the psalmist is often David, who are condemning the unrighteous. And Psalm 14 speaks of someone who doesn't know God. And he's saying Jews, the typical Jew is like that. It's very offensive. And he can say it because he's already established that everyone suppresses the truth. Do you remember the beach ball? All thinking has become futile. All hearts are darkened. Chapter 1 verse 22 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Even Israel. Think about it. They receive God's law. What's the first thing they do when Moses is up on the mountain? They build a golden calf and they worship that calf as some sort of image. They, like everyone else, have rejected and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for lies. And I wonder if we actually believe it. Do you actually believe that all your motives, all your desires, all your actions are under that influence? I won't tell you who said this, but a teenager got home and said, our youth group leader said we don't sin every day. And I went, what? Because I was preparing this sermon. <laughs> <laughs> See, I wonder, I wonder if a quiet confidence slips in in the Christian life. Thinking we're not as bad as all that, are we? I don't go over the top. I'm quite decent, actually. But if it can happen to Israel, it can happen to us. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Israel were an example for us. And it's easy to fall into idolatry, easy to fall into sin, because the flesh is still with us. The sinful nature remains with us. We're just the same. We may be more equipped for the fight as Christians with the Spirit, 
But our old self is still there. Our old flesh is still there. The world is still whispering its seductive messages. We can all be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. We can all be deceived into thinking that sin doesn't matter. The Jews thought it didn't matter as long as they had the law. And that was their boast. And that's how Paul finishes this section to the Jews amongst them. The works of the law will not justify you. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, he's saying for the Jews, they, have, they think they have confidence in what they are doing. Uh, and if you want to boast in what you're doing, you're in trouble because the law is only good to point out sin and your wrongdoing, not excusing you from it. Now, I had, I had until the end of last year quite a proud driving record. I spent about uh, uh, maybe uh, 25 years without any points being lost. Quite proud of that, actually. But one day I got back and I found a letter from the local authority saying, you've been caught speeding. And I went, that's rubbish. <laughs> um, I mean, I haven't sped before in my life. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I looked at the, the thing, and it said, actually, you've been caught speeding at this speed along the road. And I went, come on. So I drove down to the road, because I was convinced I was wrong, and there it was, 50 kilometres an hour, and I'd been doing 60. See what the law does? I went, oh, I couldn't say anything else. The law had condemned me. I couldn't answer. That's exactly what God's word does. It actually condemns you if you think you're righteous by what you're doing. Our justification, our right standing before God, doesn't depend on how good I think I am because I do some parts of the law. No, if you want to think like that, you're in trouble because the law will convict you at some point. And so the question I had as I prepared this was, how would hearing all this about the Jews help the Roman Gentile Christians, and indeed us? And I think the answer lies in verse 17 of chapter 16, when he says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetite, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You see, the Gentiles need to hear what Paul is saying to the Jews because he needs to show that they're not teaching sound doctrine or they're not saying sound doctrine. And he wants them not to listen to those influences that are causing divisions and causing judgments. Justification is not by the works of the law that some might be insisting on. The righteous, the justified, will live by trust in Jesus because the righteous will live by faith. Remember chapter 1, verse 17. So, think about it. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know, or how many Bible studies you've been to, how many kick conferences you've been to. It doesn't matter how much you serve at church or the walk up to tell others about Jesus. In fact, your Christian CV may be very impressive. But even though that might make you look good to others, if you put your confidence in those things, if they are your boast, if they are your pride, 
you're in trouble. Because what God wants is for you to trust his son, the king and the saviour. Ben Elton said, I believe the sum total of good outweighs the sum total of evil, despite evidence to the contrary. You see, I think our society, our world, perhaps even you, can't stop thinking that we're good and we prefer to ignore the evil. But it's not what we think of ourselves that count. It's what God thinks, his verdict. All are under sin facing his wrath. You, me, those out there, everyone is implicated. No one is righteous, not even one. Apart from, there is one. In the very next verse, he's about to say, the righteousness has now been made manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's another verdict to come, but it's not about us. It's about his son, who we must believe in to save us from his wrath. More about that next semester. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word, which states so clearly who we are and uh, where we stand before you. Father God, help us to remember these things, that it's only by faith in your Son that will save us, and that we have no leg to stand on when we do not trust in him. Keep teaching us teaching us to trust him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to continue praying now, so yeah, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for all that you do. We thank you that uh, we can come before you now in prayer, uh, and we thank you that uh, we have been able uh, uh, to meet together now under your word, uh, free from the pe- uh, fear of persecution. Uh, we know that uh, so many of our brothers and sisters in other places of the world do not have this privilege. And we ask that uh, yeah, you will be with them and strengthen them and sustain them to the end. Father, we thank you for how you have spoken to us today. None of us are righteous and none of us understand. We so desperately need you. Please, Father, send us more of your grace that we may be saved from your judgment. Help us live our lives for your glory. We pray for the University of Tasmania and we ask that, uh, yeah, you will be, uh, you, the true and living God, will be at work amongst their training, mission, and social events. We ask that you will grow your people and bring many into relationship with you through that. We pray for our Easter mission and we ask that you will help us read your word. And if we have more questions about you and or your son, we ask that you will give us the courage to ask these questions. If we have friends who have questions about you, please give us boldness to invite them to our Easter talks. Father, we pray for the Mark drama, Uncover Mark and Gongversations. Please be powerfully at work through these ministries. And finally, we ask that above all, your name will be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
who would like to go first? Uh, I'll try and I'll try and understand your questions. This is not my strong point. Answering may be fine, but understanding the question may not. Be so. <laughs> yes. Um, what are some flags we can look for to see when we're our trust in Jesus is kind of degrading? Yes. Okay. What are the flags in Jesus? Uh, listen, sorry. What are the flags that we can look for? to show that our trust in Jesus is great. Well, the fact is, um, I say every every morning, are you waking up, this is one of the flags, I think, and is saying, who am I? Um, I guess that's the question we don't often ask ourselves, is it? Maybe you've never asked yourself that question. But um, maybe it's a question we should ask ourselves every morning. Who am I? Um, I'm a sinner. Uh, I'm in need of salvation. I'm in need of Jesus. And so there's, there's lots in the, in the scriptures to talk about if we endure with him or if we endure in Christ. So there's a, a condition in one sense on, on uh, continuing to trust. Now, of course, continuing to trust happens because God is working in us by his spirit. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep saying, I need to trust you. So I'd say, am I every day waking up and reminding myself of the gospel? Right, because it's the gospel which is the power of God for salvation, um, and and doing that. So uh, keep that at the forefront. So I think that's probably by and far the, the longest thing. I think um, I find it in myself <laughs> when I do something and I start to boast about it. Now it may not look like a boast, um, but it can come across very subtly. Um, for example, uh, uh, this morning in the chaplaincy, I don't think this was a boast, but it could have could have been a boast quite easily. I said, uh, someone brought a chair into the chaplaincy. There's no chairs in here because we had to take them into the into the room because we had so many people at team yesterday. Right? Now, I had to stop myself there and think, was that a boast? What am I boasting? What is my confidence in? Do you see what I mean? So it can be on anything, really. Uh, um, and that seems to be the Jew, Jew, Jew problem, is um, their boast before men. Right? Their boast is circumcision, or their boast is the law. And Paul is saying, actually, if you want to be, if your boasting is going to be grounded in the law, it has to be all of the law, right? Uh, otherwise, you're going to fail at some point. And so your confidence shouldn't be in that. It's never been about, we're going to see, it's never been about confidence in the law. It's been about confidence in God and his son. And that's your trust. That's your, where your trust is. Okay. So when I find myself boasting, when I find myself um, feeling quite, Proud, uh, I know that there's a bit of a problem, and it often comes out in words about how how I'm doing. Good. I hope that starts to set in. Yeah. Um, with chapter three, verse one and chapter three, verse nine. Yep. Uh, is the advantage talked about there different or the same? Yeah. So one has got. Let me just get the. Um, one is more. I think. Uh, Oh, I don't have my notes. Oh, there we go. Yes, it is. Um, one is more. Um, is there any advantage in just being a Jew? That is, having the law or having circumcision. The other one seems, are we, are we any better off on Judgment Day? Um, so he seems to be talking about, are we any better off before God because of what we've got? Right? Or my boasting in certain things. So one is concerning the privilege of being a Jew. And the other one is, well, the privilege of Jew, does it make any difference in his verdict on me? Which I think is why uh, he, there's just a subtle shift. 
So yes, you're right to judge us for evil, is the conclusion from the first section, but God is right to actually condemn you in the second because we're all under sin, and it's like his closing argument. So I made the case, God is not unjust, this is my closing argument, we're all under sin, Jew and Gentile together, which is what he's been going on. Yes? So it does seem in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul talks about the servant of God, and I think he's got in mind Paul and Barnabas and so on, and those who've come to preach the gospel to them, that their works will be tested on Judgment Day by fire. And so if you've built shoddily with straw and hay and wood, well, what's going to happen when the testing fire of God's judgment comes? It's going to be burnt up, he says. Uh, but the, the person who, even though was building, will be saved because of his confidence in Christ. So there's a sense in which works are judged, and perhaps there's even a sense of greater reward in heaven. You know the parables that Jesus talks about, that uh, you'll be entrusted with more, the five talents and so on and so forth, um, uh, or ten talents. Um, it, there, it could be that there is, a, there is a recognition of the works we've done. Not salvation, I'm not talking about salvation, he's talking about a recognition of how uh, what we've been doing, as it were. Now, in Revelation 20, it seems as though the judgment books are opened and those who were book, whose names were not written in the Book of Life are cast into the fiery hell um, and then the, the book's closed. <laughs> so it doesn't seem as though there's, there's any accounting there. Um, it just seems that they will, they will pass through into eternal life, into the new heavens and new earth, as it were. Um, but last week, it seems as though your, 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 the judgment is based on how you have responded to the truth, how you respond to the gospel. That's the important thing. That's what justifies you. That's what stands you right. Um, anything more than that, in terms of the works we've done, I can't. I, I, I wouldn't say with certainty that um, God will give more to others, but there seems to be suggestions of that in, 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 in the parables. What? Like a rich one welcome in the parables. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Beaten with many blows and few blows, and all that sort of thing in judgment. Any last? Oh, couple. Of, right. I wonder if no one else has any. Yep. Um, a question from last week. Is yeah. Right? Yeah, that's fine. Um, the thinking about um, the what it means to have uh, the law written on their hearts. Mm. And so last week you said that we were talking about Gentile Christians. Yes. Um, they have the law written on their hearts. So let's go. They know uh, the law. I'm just wondering if, um, does it mean that if the law is not written on everyone's hearts, that then there's no moral culpability for everyone? For yeah. The law, like, like this week's book. Yeah, no, so in the, the moral culpability or culpability comes in chapter one, okay. right? Um, now, it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to see sometimes. Chapter two, verse one, um, it begins with, I don't know, what does it say? Therefore, oh, there we go, therefore. 
Um, so what he said in chapter one is the important bit, right? We are all under sin, right? We are all implicated. We all have futile thinking and darkened hearts, including the Jew, right? Because that's what we are by nature like. Uh, Paul says the same sort of thing. So we're all implicated in chapter one, whether we have the law or not, because we all suppress the truth about God. Right? Um, yeah, so, so I think, I think that's the, the, the guilt factor there. Um, and indeed, he's going to argue in chapter 5, because we're all in Adam, um, that we're all implicated. He's like a fountainhead, and everything that comes through that fountainhead is infected by his sin and the guilt of his sin. Okay. Um, so what was the second question? Um, or the other part of the question? Um, you had two questions there. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, so if, if they haven't got the law written on their hearts, right? Um, yeah, so, so I think that's the answer. If, if, whether you have the law or not, it doesn't make any difference. You're all under sin. And that doesn't give grounds for people claiming unfairness? Like, I didn't know the law. No, no. The point he's making is that everyone suppresses the truth about God. Everyone exchanges the truth for the lie. We think life is better without God. Naturally, by our natures. That's just the way we are. Right? And you're just thinking, but I grew up as a Christian and I've always had this. Well, no, if you were left unraised as a Christian, right? If you weren't raised as a Christian all the way through your life, well, you'd be the same. You'd reject him as well. That's the point. And even Israel, this is very interesting. If you want to cross-reference, go and look at Deuteronomy 7 and 9. Why did God choose Israel? Because of his promise. Right? Yet he keeps saying, you're a stiff-necked people. You're stubborn. You don't go my way. But I'm going I'm I'm to be faithful to you anyway because of, your, because of my promise to you. Okay? So even Israel are implicated by this suppression of the truth. Even Israel exchanged the truth of God for a lie as they did at Sinai with the golden cup. Yeah. One more. I guess the question is, like, following up from that, if God um, is faithful to Israel, not because of how good they are, but because of his promise, I guess, why did God give them the promise in the first place? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is the question my kids asked me. And the, um, it, it's like with everything with God's choice or God's sovereignty. In one sense, you can give an answer. It is for his glory, ultimately. Right? So even Israel and their failure in the sending of Jesus, it's for their glory ultimately. But on the other hand, you don't expect me to answer that, do you? Uh, because uh, I, can't, I, I don't know the, 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 the mind of God. Um, I can't tell you everything about God. God chooses according to who he is, according to his character. And he, and he and perseveres with those people. And he perseveres with you if you're a Christian because of his character because of his sovereignty and his desire to have a relationship with you, which is what this whole thing's about, which is what justification's about. It's his desire to have a relationship, loving, trusting relationship. And I hope that you will put your confidence 